Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger on this episode of Better Off. It's Brian Merchant, author of The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone. I managed to sneak inside the Foxconn factory where iPhones are made. What I saw was really grim. You know, reading this book, I hope that people can kind of integrate some of those dirtier parts of the iPhone story as a physical object, as this historical object, into how we see it every day. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast, sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. On today's show, we've got author Brian Merchant. He's just written a new book called The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone. And uh, I guess that generally speaking, everybody kind of knows loosely what's gone on with the iPhone, but it's been an unbelievable 10-year period since the introduction of this device. It's changed our lives And what's kind of cool is Brian really goes down deep to the underbelly, to the origin story of the iPhone. So without further ado, here's my interview with Brian Merchant. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. The iPhone turned 10. 10. It's only 10 years old. But luckily for you, I have the foremost expert on the iPhone. He is Brian Merchant, author of The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone. Brian is a editor at Motherboard. Whatever, you've been in a million places. So welcome to Better Off. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, All right, Brian, first of all, this is a money show. So I'm going to throw you a curveball. All right. You ready? Bring it on. What's the best financial decision or money decision or even career decision you've ever made? Me personally? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, just before we uh, started rolling the tape here, we were talking about uh, New York and L.A. And, you know, I think if you trace it back to the very root, the decision to throw it all to the wind, move to move to New York uh, right out of college, that was probably ended up being the best financial decision I ever made. Everything sort of accrued from there, all the career experience and all of the uh, opportunities just started, uh, you know, it takes a while, but, you know, that that's the route. I like to go back. I like to take the wide view, so. All right. So tell me a little bit about why you wanted to write a uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages about the iPhone. Well, you know, I just kind of had one of those moments uh, a few years back where uh, I think that a lot of people have this moment, right, where you are forced to be without your phone for whatever reason. You leave it in a cab like I did, or it breaks, you, you know, you, you drop it. And then you kind of like have this jolt where you're sort of pulled out of this sort of new standard, this new reality, this new norm where we're plugged in all the time, where we're relying on our phones, where we're able to send emails, where we're on the Slack app, we're tweeting. And and it just kind of was like, whoa, like I had managed to not do that for years. And just sort of being without this phone for a day made me kind of interrogate, like, what is it that makes it so essential? Like, how did this thing happen? And one thing led to another, and I, you know, thought it would be interesting if I could really try to understand this device kind of holistically and all the threads that came together to make that so. So I uh, yanked the screen off with the help of some friends at a company called iFixit, and we kind of dug down into the guts, and I was hooked. I kind of love the idea that you're sitting there. Um, I, I, this is how I imagined it. I'm going to age myself out here, right? Um, that you were taking the, that you're, you're sort of un, un, unveiling the phone in the way that we used to play that game, Operation, where you're like, okay, one false move, and the whole thing blows up. That's exactly it. That's, I mean, these things are so, it's so tightly compact in there. You know, they've got so many components, so many uh, chips and sensors and the battery. And, you know, if, if you do, if you do, 
yank too fast and you sever one cable, that's it. So the book took you inside of the Apple organization, but also to the place where it was made. So you went, you traveled to China, right? Yeah. And tell me a little bit about that experience. What was that like for you? Like I was saying, I did want to kind of tell the whole story from, you know, soup to nuts um, of how the iPhone comes about. And a really important sort of piece of that story is how the physical device is actually manufactured. So I, I flew to Shanghai, where there's a big iPhone factory, and I flew to Shenzhen, where there's a big iPhone factory. There's a lot of big iPhone factories in China. And, and we set about kind of interviewing the workers, trying to get an idea of what life is like at these plants where hundreds of thousands of people live, work, eat, sleep, assemble iPhones, and it's their kind of their entire life. Almost uh, six or seven years ago, there was a, a major headlines about uh, some really poor working conditions and a suicide epidemic had broken out by some of the workers. So we wanted to see if this was still the case. I wanted to know how things had changed, what sort of the work culture is like today, and how that sort of integrates into our conception of the device. And how has it changed? Well, the answer that I found was not so much. Um, some of the worst offenses have been stanched a little bit, but this oppressive work culture where there's a really aggressive management, where uh, if you mess up and you're a line worker, you're really subject to public humiliation. They'll stand you up and berate you at the end of the day for your you know, one mistake that cost them an iPhone or two over the course of hundreds in one day. So there's a lot of pressure. A lot of these workers are moving from rural areas for a chance to make a little extra money and to send some cash home. And, you know, they're very isolated. They're living in these dorms, sometimes with seven other people. Um, and, you know, Foxconn, which is the contractor, can sometimes withhold pay for reasons that are obscure to the worker. And it creates this really this environment where people can feel isolated in these giant city-sized, very industrial, very gray sort of uh, factory nation states. And what is that worker, that average worker at Foxconn, what is that person earning on an annualized basis? Not much. It does vary, uh, but on an annual basis, it's really just a couple thousand dollars. Is that considered a plum job, though, if you're trying to make a move from the rural setting in China? Is it considered to be like, hey, this is a stepping stone. This will get you to a city, a next step? It is. That was one of the interesting things is that a lot of the workers told us that they knew what they were getting into. They knew that Foxconn was terrible and that it had this reputation where not only of being a hard place to work, but also a place where people die. So they took the job knowingly, figuring that it would be just that, a stepping stone. You work at Foxconn for a year, then you can get a better job. But yeah, it is still that opportunity in a country that is still, in a lot of places, really developing and, you know, in need of of revenue streams. A lot of these families do, you know, they do view it as an opportunity source. How much would it cost Apple to actually have the iPhones made in the United States? Not much more. You know, there's been some analysis done of this, and you're looking at the sum total cost of a couple bucks more. That's really all that it it, it is. I know it, it, it's really kind of thought of as this huge labor savings, but what the real thing that Apple is after is that they can group all of these uh, supplier and manufacturing chains really tightly close together. So if they need to change a component, they have vast sort of resources of skilled workers, these pools to draw from, and they can get them to work faster and longer hours than here. It's not ultimately kind of about the wage because there are real costs to 
sending everything over to China, manufacturing it all there, shipping it onto an airplane. They they just they use like 757s to load the iPhones and they just send them over here. So it's really Apple is after sort of that supply chain flexibility. And Tim Cook, the current CEO, is one of the primary drivers of this. He really sort of was really aggressive before he became CEO and sort of tightening up the operations and getting it so you had, you know, your battery maker right next to your final supplier or your sensor manufacturer. So you could really say like, okay, listen, there's been a change in our design. You need to do this. Wake up 100 people, get to work and, you know. Okay. So this brings me to a different perspective, which is I get that Tim Cook is like the engineer slash business school guy who makes this all more efficient. But it was Steve Jobs who took an existing technology and just made it more beautiful, right? Yeah, that's generally what sort of separates the two, especially in sort of the the, the popular conception. That's Tim Cook has been since his days at, at Compaq, a real sort of exactly efficiency manager. Just really, he's all about sort of tightening these supply chains. Really, all about getting the business to run as streamlined as possible. How did the iPhone come about internally at Apple? What were the conditions that existed in mm. the the world at large, and then what got Steve Jobs focused on this? One of the most surprising things to me in in reporting this book was tracing that sort of the very, very, very origin story from the very root. And it turns out that the iPhone was born out of this sort of freewheeling experimentation by this tiny team at Apple who were working kind of behind Steve Jobs' back, worried that if they found out what they were doing, that he would just kind of kill this crazy experimentation. So they were just kind of looking at ways to sort of move beyond the keyboard, move beyond the mouse, because they really believed that as computers got faster, as the internet brought us more media to play with, as sort of the whole media environment got richer, that we'd want to do more than just click and tap away. So they were really after this idea of direct manipulation, of being able to reach out, touch data, touch information, touch pictures, move maps. You know, it's just, it wasn't a phone. The original discussions were to kind of just work on this very sort of broad input paradigm where it would replace part of the keyboard. And then maybe they thought, oh, we could do this as a touch screen, do a tablet, do something that would now resembles more the, the iPhone. And it was just this wacky room size, you know, it was a table, sort of a ping pong table sized apparatus with a with like a, a black touch pad that they bought from a company called Fingerworks and a white piece of paper on top of it. And then a giant jury-rigged projector screen that was just beaming down the current Mac software onto it. So it was this, so you'd touch it, but there'd be a shadow from your finger, and it would be this real funky sort of, you know, mad science experiment. And when did Steve Jobs get hip to this that was going on? So once they sort of got a few demos perfected, you know, they did a few things, and one of the interesting things that they did early was maps, was showing this would be a cool thing to have with interacting with maps. So they took MapQuest at the time and beamed it down and kind of like worked with the software until they could sort of twist and you could zoom in on places just by squeezing and pinching your fingers, that motion that we all know now. Once they had a handful of those scrolling maps, they brought it to Johnny Ive, who at the time was kind of, you know, the golden boy, right, from his design work with with the IMAX. Uh, And Johnny thought it was great. And he kind of told them, he's like, all right, you know, you know how it goes with Steve. We have to wait for the exact right moment. We'll wait till he's in a good mood. You know, maybe he's chipper. So that day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That window, you know, it closes fast sometimes. It really was like that. All these engineers assured me. They were like, you know, it really was like that. 
Johnny presented it to him, and first he wasn't impressed. He saw it, and he was like, mm, you know, okay. He was already at that point a very product-driven guy, and this thing was, a, like I said, a science experiment. So he saw a little bit of the potential, but then he came back to it a few days later, and he's like, you know what, I think you've got something here. And then a couple weeks later, he saw it again. And before long, he was like, you know what? This is great. And I invented it. No way. (laughs) That's terrible. So what had to happen internally to get to that place where, you know, in 2007, June 29th, we see the first iPhone? Um, A lot. The first thing that had to happen was Steve had to to be convinced. um, And it really wasn't that simple. At first, he was interested in this project, but he didn't know what it was going to be. He had executives really trying to convince him to do a phone. Because at the time, the iPod was Apple's biggest product, right? And cell phones were about to eat their lunch because they were getting smart enough to store MP3s. And once you could have MP3s on your phone, do you want to have, like, pockets full of gadgets, even if one's a cool-looking iPod? Probably not. So they really impressed upon him to sort of pull the trigger here. And that's sort of when it became the question of, do we take this research project that has this crazy touchscreen-based interaction paradigm that's really cool... Or do we kind of take a safer route and, like, everybody knows the iPod, it has great brand recognition, and do we stick a phone on it? For many months, that was kind of the big question at Apple. You had engineers really trying to figure out a nice, savvy, elegant way to get a phone onto an iPod. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. A nice, savvy, elegant way to get a phone onto an iPod. How about a nice, savvy elegant way to manage your investment life on your iPhone or other device. Hmm, that sounds good, doesn't it? Well, maybe our sponsor, Betterment, has the key. Betterment is the largest independent online financial advisor. Betterment has technology that helps make your investing easier. I mean, you could do it on your desktop. Very old school, right? But like Brian Merchant says, everything we do, it's on our iPhones now. It's on our phones. And Betterment knows that. So Betterment makes tracking your investments really easy. It shouldn't be confusing. It shouldn't be frustrating. They implement systematic processes and procedures for securing and storing their data. Oh, by the way, how about two-factor authentication? That's pretty important now. A second layer of security beyond your password to access your Betterment account. And of course, low transparent advisory fees compared to traditional services. A quarter of a percent on assets under management with an option to upgrade to up to a half a percent for access to a CFP or a licensed financial expert. Betterment service is designed to help your long-term returns. They also want to help you lower your taxes, build wealth, other financial goals. Come on. What more could you want? And right now, Better Off listeners can get up to six months managed for free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Better Off. Betterment, we think what your money can do. And now back to my interview with Brian Merchant. One of the things that you mentioned kind of blew my mind because I, I thought this was kind of wild. So in 2007, we have ownership of smartphones, 10% of the U.S. population. Is that right? Yeah. And as of last year, 80%. Yeah. That's revolutionary. Yeah. But here's what really, yeah, I'm a numbers person. You wanted to basically convince me, the person who opens this book, it is the most important consumer product 
Ever? Yeah. Ever. ever. Like you're you're bold, dude. <laughs> that is a bold proclamation. And let me, gentle listeners, let me break this down for you. According to Brian Merchant, the author of The One Device, go out and get it, the top car brand, Toyota Corolla, 43 million of those suckers. Best-selling game console, Sony PlayStation, 382 million. Number one book series, this was also kind of nutty, I didn't know this, Harry Potter, 450 million books sold. Anything else in between Harry Potter and the iPhone? Can I skip right to the iPhone? Let's go for it. A billion. A billion sold. More than twice the number of Harry Potter books sold. This is really a classic case where innovation was not made for innovation's sake. In other words, these guys were nutting around with this thing, and Mm. they were looking to try to do something. It became so much bigger than anyone could have ever imagined. There was no way that people back in 2005, 6, 7 thought we were going to get to this place. What conditions have existed to allow Apple to thrive like that and allow the iPhone to thrive like that over the last 10 years? You know, a lot of the things that did happen and that did drive the success... um, were, just like you said, were completely unpredicted by Apple. And in fact, all the research I did and many of the interviews that I did with folks who were there point to the fact that the most important thing that they did was they opened up the App Store. You know, the story of how that came about is a lot more complex because Steve Jobs really did not want there to be an App Store. Why is that? Well, he loved having, you know, complete control over his devices. And life and and, anything. And everything that he could set his (laughs) eyes on, yeah. But he, especially his newest and most cherished device, he really, you know, if you look at interviews from the time, he's always describing it kind of more like an accessory. He's thinking of this as a iPod-type device that does a narrow set of functions really well. It's really cool. It lets you browse the web. But most importantly, it lets you make phone calls. It le- it lets you, you know, sort of just do what he believed was the most lacking thing at the time, and that's easily navigate your address list, do texting a little more intuitively, and just make calls. So it's kind of funny that that became the thing that that's least known for now in the in terms of the iPhone. The iPhone is known as an app machine, and it's a massive industry, right? I mean, the now app it's a industry, huge industry now, yeah. fifty billion dollars a year. Or yeah, something? I think forty, forty, uh, depending on how you look at it in terms of pure revenue. But yeah, it's this one of these things that you know his staff had to tell him, Steve, we got to open this up. Consumers had to tell them, listen, like we, we want this app store. Developers had this big outcry, just said, let us develop apps for this. This is a huge opportunity. And then maybe the most interesting is there is a sort of a subset of sort of hackers who were breaking into the phone for the sole purpose of opening up the ecosystem so people could develop apps. They didn't want to steal anyone's data or anything. It was called jailbreaking. They jailbreak the phone. And then people could write their own programs for it. Because at its heart, the iPhone is just a portable computer. And that presented a use case to Apple that was like, oh, there is this huge pent-up demand for this. You know, we should probably listen to our, the consumers, the hackers, my executive staff, and all this stuff. So there was almost like this, almost a protest that kind of drove Steve Jobs to cave. If you look at where we are today, yeah. 10 years after the iPhone, we have... A real challenger, maybe not in the United States, because the iPhone is still dominant here in the United States. But globally, we know that the Android is a massive player. Can you talk about the differences between the two? In fact, if you were going to go tell your friend right now to go buy a phone, what phone would you tell that person to buy? Well, it it depends a little bit on what sort of you're after um, and what kind of things that, that interest you. 
One of the interesting things that is happening over the last few years is they're getting more and more similar. So the biggest differences used to be that Apple had this big walled garden, and that had a, a lot of benefits, and that's its software and its hardware are very tightly integrated down to the every detail. You, you don't have an iPhone that runs anything but iOS, Apple's operating system. So you have this good end-to-end experience, and you have a very secure phone. What you don't have is a more sort of free array of apps and stuff. You know, Apple's everything that goes on the App Store is still, you know, has to pass through a, you know, pretty strict vetting process. The Android, on the other hand, is more known as sort of, and was for a long time, more of kind of a Wild West. How does the iPhone remain this iconic and important device going forward? I mean, obviously, if you go back 15 years, we were talking about BlackBerry. Yeah. How does iPhone not become BlackBerry? Part of it is they really do continue to upgrade all of its features, and it's both on the hardware and software side in a really sort of integrated, pleasing way. And in some sense, they do make the best phone, according to a lot of people, the most secure phone, the most powerful phone. But they're really not that far ahead anymore. The other half of the story is just... Nobody is better at Apple than marketing, than branding, than telling this story about the phone, than really elevating it as the sort of aspirational, smart, the one device, the one thing that, that you need for, for your day above and beyond. And, you know, they do a, they do a good job with, with the hardware. But, but Apple's legacy of marketing, it's Steve Jobs' sort of keynotes and, and its branding strategy is really sort of in a league of its own. That halo may be fading a little bit. You know, Tim Cook constantly does get jibes for being less innovative, less sort of charismatic than Jobs. And Apple may be becoming more of a sort of a, you know, a GE type company that's just this big behemoth. But let me ask you a question. As you look at that and you look at innovation is Apple still a place, even under Tim Cook, who, as we discussed, more of a, a nuts and bolts approach to you know increasing shareholder value and doing that? Yeah. But is it still a place where innovation can occur at this level? I mean, I don't I guess that, you know, they're trying self-driving cars. They're trying maybe we're going to do entertainment. Maybe we're going to do this. There's a lot yeah. of th- a lot of spaghetti being thrown at the refrigerator. Yeah. Are you getting the sense after covering this deep dive that that is a place where innovation can still occur? So the interesting thing that I think that I learned uh, about this very question in this reporting is that there is almost no doubt in my mind that innovation is happening at Apple on perhaps an unprecedented scale. There's there's probably a team, you know, something like the team that that came up with the very kernel of the iPhone working right now, whether or not Tim Cook knows about it, whether or not it's sort of a sanctioned project, whether it's a skunkworks thing going on in back room. They have such a host of talent. They have so many smart people. There's no doubt that the innovation is happening. The question is whether or not there is a viable pathway for that to come to fruition. So one of the things that is sort of uh, unique to Jobs is that he had this sort of built-in mythology. He was this hero of Silicon Valley, and people would, you know, follow him into battle. People came to work at Apple just because he was there. They put up with his his more uh, eccentric idiosyncrasies because he had this 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 legend, and that gave him sort of the you know the power within the company to sort of snap his fingers and say, once he did get on board with the iPhone, he 
summoned all of the resources just about. He put other product lines on hold. Macs weren't going to get updated. He took everything and poured it into the iPhone. Right. You can't imagine Tim Cook doing that. He is, you know, he doesn't have the same kind of stature even within the company as Jobs did. I think he'd get some blowback from his fellow executive staff. There's more of a power sort of struggle going on uh, behind the scenes. You know, there's a great benefit to being the decider at a company. And if you happen to be right about a product, then it can pay huge dividends like it did with the iPhone. So um, in wrapping up, as you were doing the research for the one device, was there something about the development and the current conditions that made you sour on the company? Did you, in other words, you went to China, you look at this. Did you feel bad about this? Did you say like, oh, this is kind of dirty? Apple's not the bad actor here. In fact, Apple does some things that are uh, you know, above and beyond some of its competitors in terms of protections for uh, when it finds child labor and that kind of thing. But yeah, when I, I managed to sneak inside the Foxconn factory where iPhones are made, and I, what I saw was really grim and hundreds of thousands of people sort of living lives that, you know, many iPhone users would never wish on anyone. So there are two sides to this story, and I think we can demand that Apple do a little bit more. And I think that you know, reading this book, I hope that people can kind of integrate some of those dirtier parts of the iPhone story as a physical object, as this historical object, into how we see it every day and maybe push for some some change on those fronts. Yes, of course, most people would be like, I want to skip over that feeling. Of, <laughs> I don't want to feel bad about it. I love my device. Brian Merchant is an editor at Motherboard Vice's Science and Technology Outlet. He is the founder and editor of Terraform, its online fiction outlet. So I can't wait to read your fiction next. He's the author of The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone. Now, Brian, before we let you go, remember I started the interview and I said, hey, what's the best money decision you ever made? Here's your chance. What's your worst one? Whew. <laughs> There's too many to count, I think. Just give me one. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You're Perhaps really not me. buying Apple stock when it was uh, available to you early on. There you go. That's a good My one. first phone was uh, was an Android, so maybe that's the worst decision I ever made. Really? But you've <laughs> yeah. got a beautiful iPhone right now. Are you anticipating that the anniversary edition, the 8, is going to knock my socks off? In other words, do I have to worry about getting a new phone, or can I stick to my old 6? You absolutely can stick to your 6, Apple really you know goes to great lengths to try to sell you the new the new device and to upgrade and there are really viable really great viable ways to keep your phone going if it's slowing down just get a new battery the screen as fastened on and as sleek as it looks uh it does come off so you can you can by all means stick with your old phone Brian Merchant, he is the author of The One Device: The Secret History of the iPhone. It's not so secret anymore. I hope not. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it is time for our favorite part of the program. It is the listener question of the week. If you have a financial question you'd like to get on the air, send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Two chances to get on every week. Tuesday, we do our Better Off bonus call of the week, and then we have the big show. Either one will do. Just send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Right now, we're going to talk to Garrett. He's on the line from Colorado. Hi, Garrett. Welcome to Better Off. What's going on? How can I help you? Well, Jill, I've got a small sack of cash, and it's collecting dust. Oh, dear. And I want to uh, hopefully make that stack grow, but also prevent the dust from collecting. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, how much money is uh, collecting dust? It's about $20,000. 
I've got it just sitting in, um, you know, my savings account slash and checking account. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd like to try to determine what I need to do in terms of, you know, investing that for either retirement, putting it into our house, maybe saving some of that for, for buying a new car in the next year or two. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what direction to go. Okay. And is this 20000 that's sitting in cash in addition to your emergency reserve fund, or is this your emergency reserve fund? No, this is in addition to. Okay. So this fund. is a surplus. Great. Okay. Now tell me a little bit about yourself. How old are you? I'm 31, and uh, my wife's 28. Mm-hmm. We, we make a combined salary of I'm about 125,000. Mm-hmm. We uh, we bought our home, uh, our first home, in January 2016 at four percent, and our monthly payments about 12.28 a month. Um, let's see, she has uh, a 401k through her job, and I'm not sure how much is in there, but she's only been at the job for about 18 months. Um, I work for a small organization, and they don't offer any retirement. And so in 2015, I opened up uh, Roth IRAs for both of us. Great. And so I have oh, 17000 in mine, and she has about 13000 in hers. And we're now um, fully maxing those out. Great. So um, you just mentioned your wife's 401k. Is she contributing to that? And if so, at what level? What percent of her income is going in there? Oh gosh, didn't quite do my homework there, but I know she's she's fully maxing out her contribution. Maxing out to get their match or Correct. Ma- okay, okay. All right, so probably something like 5 or 6% is my guess. Yeah. Okay. And um the money that you have in cash is that money that happened because of an event or have you just been saving money? Are you just, you know, living well below your means and saving money? No, we're we're just saving. Okay, great. Fantastic. Okay. So you said something about a car. Let's let's talk about that for a second. Uh, do you think that is realistic like within the next year? Um next next year or two, um it's possible that we could uh perhaps have our first kid in the next year or two. Mm. So that's kind of why we're thinking about the car. Um but both of our cars are over 10 years old, over 100,000 miles, so we see that as yeah, a liability. Expectation. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to hate this because, I mean, I really, it's kind of boring. But if you're. That's fine. I would, I honestly would just go do the car thing. Um, you know, you got the money there. Maybe you go look at, you know, like a pre owned car. You buy something used. You have this 20 grand. You, you don't want to end up with a big fat car payment if you are considering having a kid. So maybe I would start sh- shopping around now and, and get that done. And um, and then I wouldn't mind keeping a little extra money in surplus if you are going to have a kid because that is going to actually eat into your cash. If you want to feel better about this and stop that surplus from accumulating or adding to that surplus, have your wife increase her 401k contribution instead of being at 5 or 6%. Tell her to go up up to you know 15%. And then all of a sudden the surplus is you're not going to keep adding to that checking account and savings account every month. You just not because the money won't be there. So I would ha- encourage her to basically increase her 401k to about 15%. Use the money that you already have saved that excess surplus, buy the car, have a little cash on hand to, for, you know, if a kid is come is imminent and uh, and and that way you're doing a little bit of everything, but 
you're being smart about deploying that cash for something you are going to need. So I wouldn't go out and like start trying to figure out how to invest outside of anything else at this point. I think you've got what you need. Be smart, you know, and and if you see that the money keeps building up and you really don't need it and you've got your car, then you may even say to your wife, hey, go up to 20% in the 401k. And if if all of that is being done and you still have a surplus, then we'll start talking about building a non-retirement investment account. But I think you're a little bit away from that point. Okay. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Go buy an awesome car. Okay. Send us a picture, okay? I will. All right. Thanks for calling. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to Brian Merchant. It was great to have him on the program. I learned a lot about the iPhone. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag BetterOff. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at BetterOffPodcast.com. That's Ask Jill at BetterOffPodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.